you have your Bibles with you, open them with me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter number 4. By now you know that the Revelation was written sometime during the last decade of the first century. That means somewhere in the 90s A.D., a little over 1900 years ago. By now you know that the writer of the Revelation was a man by the name of John. And you know that he was in prison on the island of Patmos. Patmos is on the southern edge of the Aegean Sea, right where the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea meet. That's where Patmos is, a little dot on any map that you see. You also know that John was writing to the congregations that made up seven different churches in Asia. And like John, they were suffering. Some of them had been killed. Some of them had had their families divided by the government, and one half of the family went way over, the, way over in this direction, and the others were sent in this direction, and they had no more contact. Some people were having their houses and their businesses confiscated. Some people were being tortured. Most of the Christians were being forced to leave their homes and live either in cemeteries or in caves. It was a dire time to be a Christian, and they were desperately seeking hope. And John wrote the revelation to give them hope. They're asking three questions. Why is this happening to us? Number one, what is about to happen to us? Number two, where is God in our suffering? Number three, three questions that are not unfamiliar nor are they strangers to those of us who from time to time have experienced a sudden crisis of some sort. We will ask those three questions. We may not say them vocally for fear of being judged by someone, but we will think about them if we don't say them. And John's writer, John's readers were, were asking these three questions. Now, the whole book of Revelation is John inspired by God to answer those three questions that these people are asking. He spends the whole book answering those three questions. He spends the whole book answering those questions not only for the people who first read the Revelation, but for you and me who are reading it today. Beginning in chapter 4, John experiences uh, an invitation. He's invited to go to heaven, not because he's dying, but because God wants to show John something to relay to his readers. So let's pick up with Revelation chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. The title of this message is, Where the View is Better. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. 
These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. Imagine yourself for just a moment, driving your car down a dirt road in the country. Do you see yourself? Do you picture it? Riding down a dirt road in the country. You're passing by farmland. One field after another field after another. And in this, these fields of farmland, you see wheat growing. Some sort of grain, wheat. And it's already growing about two and a half to three feet high. Do you see it in your mind? Do you picture it? As you're driving by, you notice one field after another. Nothing unusual because you've been down this dirt road before. You've seen farmland with grain growing on it before. This is nothing new. But you pass by one particular field of grain and you notice something different about it from all the other fields. In this particular field, you notice that some of the grain is standing, still two and a half or three feet tall. Some of the grain has been cut off right at the ground. And some of the grain has not been cut off, but it has been laid over and laid over so strongly that it is laying all the way to the ground. Some standing some grain cut off, and some grain laying on the ground. And you're driving by this field. Now, some of you are going to think nothing about that. But if you think nothing about it, you're going to miss something really, really interesting. Some of us will look at it and will be so intrigued by it that we will stop our car, turn the ignition off, get out, and go examine it. We pull out a microscope because you're taking a microscope with you in the car all the time. You know you are. And you got that microscope. And first, you, you plant it right on the ground where some grain has been cut off right above the ground. And you're looking at that cut off grain through a microscope. But even though you're looking at it really closely, you can't tell why someone would leave some of it high and cut some of it low and lay some of it down. So then you put your microscope over the grain that's been laid down and you look at it really closely. But... You still don't understand it. And then you pick it up, and while you hold it, you, you pull one of the strands of wheat that's still growing tall, and you pull it across the lens, and you look at it, and boy, it's a really interesting uh, picture to see through your microscope's viewfinder, but you still don't know what it means. So you're still perplexed. 
Why would someone leave part of their wheat standing, part of it cut, and part of it folded over in such a way? And so you take your microscope and you get back in your car and you drive away, still scratching your head, not knowing why someone would do this. What was the purpose of it? But now imagine that instead of driving by this field, you're flying over it in a hot air balloon. Imagine how the view might be different. You ever heard of crop circles? People who uh, fold over wheat or either they'll cut it in such a way that if you're overhead in in an airplane or a hot air balloon, you notice that there is an image there. Now, you may not know what the image is. In fact, in this picture, as I look at that, I couldn't exactly tell you what it is except it's an image of several circles put together so that they make one whole image. But I'll tell you one thing, I understand more about why some of that grain down at the field was cut off to the ground and why some of it was folded over. But you know what? I would not have understood what it was all about unless I had a view from above. Unless I had a perspective that had risen above Ground level. Well, John's readers are in a crisis. It is the worst crisis they have ever experienced in their lives. And if you were to talk with them, the topic of conversation would either start with their crisis or it would quickly get to their crisis because it's all they thought about. They were dwelling on it. It's the only thing they could see. That shouldn't surprise us because when you're going through a crisis... I mean an intense crisis. There are a couple of things that I've noticed that, that uh, human beings, you and I do with a crisis that we're in. First of all, if, if it revolves around us, we think it's one of the worst things, if not the worst thing that we've ever experienced. I see people going through a crisis all the time. And when I'm talking with them, they'll say, man, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. Now, they have, probably. But when you're in a crisis, it's all you think about. The other thing I've noticed is that when we're in a crisis and we're dwelling upon a crisis continually, we never seem to be able to resolve why we're there and what the purpose of the crisis is, how to deal with the crisis and resolve the crisis. Nobody wants to stay forever in the crisis that they're living in, but sometimes when we get in the crisis and that's all we see, we don't see any way out. That's the way John's readers were. They were in a crisis. They couldn't see any way out. And so John, who was in this same crisis, is in a conversation with God. And and, and at the opening of John chapter 4, God says to John, he says, come up here. John looked up. He saw a door that went into heaven and the door was open. Come up here, John. And John was carried up into heaven for two reasons. First of all, God wanted to show John the crisis Not from an earthly perspective, but from a heavenly perspective. Very important. God wanted John to see his crisis, not from the crisis on earth, from the perspective of earth, but from the perspective of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, regardless of what kind of crisis you have been through or are going through or are about to go through, listen to this. It always looks worse from where you're sitting. But it will always look better if you somehow can bring yourself to look at your situation from a heavenly viewpoint as opposed to from an earthly viewpoint. And so God wanted John to see the crisis from a heavenly viewpoint. The second thing that John needed to see from a heavenly perspective was God. He needed to see 
what God was doing. Remember, one of the questions they were asking was this, where is God in our crisis? Where is God in our crisis? Now, this whole idea of John being carried up into heaven uh, reminds me of two very important truths that we need to remember when we are in the thick of a crisis. And I know that some of you are. I know that some of you are in the thick of the crisis. And there are two things you need to remember. First of all, when you are in the thick of a crisis, if you are dwelling on your crisis, that provides the worst perspective for dealing with the crisis. If you're in the crisis and you are obsessively uh, dwelling upon the crisis that you're in, only seeing it from the perspective that you, that you went into the crisis in the first place, that is the worst perspective from which to deal with your crisis. Some people, and I'm one of them, been in crises and I want to dwell on them. I want to stay thinking about them. Sometimes I, can't, I don't think that I can help it. Sometimes I know that I can help it, but I choose to dwell on it. In fact, it makes me angry. I've been in crises before, and uh, uh, sometime after the, the, the heart of the crisis had come and gone, I'm still dwelling with the crisis, and I look around, and it aggravates the life out of me that people around me have already appear, they appear to have moved on, and I'm still in the crisis. It really, it really wounds me. It hurts me. Maybe you're the same way. And, and, and sometimes it is because those people have moved on. Sometimes it's not because they've moved on. People deal with crises in different ways. Sometimes it's just because they have, they have moved at a different place in dealing with the crisis. And, and I'm still where I had been to start with and have refused to budge in my crisis. But if I obsessively dwell on my crisis, that obsessive dwelling provides the worst perspective for me dealing with my crisis. What I need in order to successfully deal with my crisis is a better perspective, a view from above. And God was saying to John, you need a better perspective. The people going through this crisis need a better perspective. You need to come up here so that you can see your crisis from a heavenly perspective. Now, I need to stop here for just a moment. Because if you read many books about the Revelation, uh, they will give you a different interpretation than the one I just shared with you. Uh, the most popular interpretation of this chapter is that when John was invited up into heaven and John went up into heaven, that that was what that passage really means is the rapture of the whole church up into heaven before the tribulation. In fact, some of you have always believed that. All, that's the only thing you've ever been taught. Uh, I'm not asking you to abandon that. What I will ask you to do, though, is to go back to the opening verses of chapter 4 and ask this question. How many people were called up? Just ask the text. Go back and read the text. How many people were called up into heaven? It wasn't the church. It wasn't all Christians alive at that time. One person. Read the text. Don't read Tim LaHaye and Hal Lindsey. Read the text. And ask the text. How many people were called up? And there was only one. But you can read it. Don't take my word for it. Don't ever take my word for it. Go search the scriptures yourself to see what it is. Only one person was called up, and that person was John. There were other Christians who weren't called up. They were left there. All right. Now that I've said this, I can get back to my message, right? John is called up to get a better view of the crisis. When you look at your crisis from a heavenly perspective, things look different. It doesn't take the crisis away. 
I'm not talking about sleeping in flowers and uh, roses here and rainbows. Some people just walk around. They go to sleep in flowers and roses and rainbows. I'm not talking about that. When John was able to see his perspective from a, his crisis from a heavenly perspective, it didn't remove the crisis, but it gave him a much broader perspective for what God was doing through the crisis. The second important thing, though, that John saw is he saw a new picture of God. Where is God in your crisis? What is God doing? Where is God and what is He doing? April the 19th, 1995, an explosion occurred at the Alfred R. Murrah Center, Oklahoma City. 168 people killed. There was a book shortly thereafter that was written about the whole, uh, the whole experience of the explosion and the rescue efforts and all the things that happened in the aftermath of that bombing. The name of the book was, Where Was God at 9.02 a.m.? Now don't think for a minute that people don't wonder where God is. Don't think for a minute that Christians from time to time don't wonder where in the world is God. You get into the thick of a major league crisis. I'm not talking about indigestion here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking about a major league crisis that knocks the wind out of your, out of your lungs and it, and it knocks the, the legs out from under you and you fall emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and physically on your bottom. And you will wonder from time to time, where is God and what is He doing? The people John was writing to were wondering, where is God? It feels to me like he's left us. Feels, feels to me like he's gone back to heaven and left me down here to fend for myself in this crisis. Where is God? And so one of the reasons John is carried up into heaven is so that he can get a better view, a better picture of what God is doing and where God is. Now, by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, verse 1, John has revealed to us three essential truths about God what God is doing, and where God is. And I want to relate those to you. Three very important truths about God. The first truth that we need to remember in a crisis is this. God is present with us even when we can't see Him. God is with you even when you can't see Him. Let me, uh, let me call your attention back to Revelation chapter number 1. Revelation chapter 1. You remember that picture of Jesus that John saw in Revelation chapter 1? It begins with verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. Revelation 1 verse 12 says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. That was the voice of Jesus, by the way. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Let me stop here and say, that just a few verses later, John's going to tell us that these seven lampstands represent the seven churches to whom he is writing. Okay, you with me? So the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands, verse 13, very important, and among the lampstands. Where? Tell me. Among the lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. And he was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash about his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like blazing fire. And it goes on and on. And it is obvious to the Christian reader that the person John saw was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of his majesty, in all of his sovereignty, in all of... of 
everything that is worthy of worship, John saw the Lord. Now, the important thing about this vision, there are many important parts about it, but the one important part that I want you to notice is, where was he? He was walking among the lampstands. Do you see how important that is? These people were wondering where was God in their crisis and the first thing that John wanted to to really hammer down in their hearts and minds was this. You're wondering where God is. You feel in your heart like he's left you. By the way, you can't trust your feelings and you can't trust your heart. Our culture says trust your heart. You can't trust your heart. Jesus said out, out of your heart flows all kinds of evil things. You can't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. Trust what God says. What does God say? God says through John, the Lord is walking among you. Now what that means is, whatever crisis you've ever gone through, you've never walked through it alone. You've never been in it alone. The Lord has always been there. Even if you can't see Him, even if you can't hear Him, even if you didn't know He was there, just rest upon this truth. God is with you in your crisis. Now there's a second truth that John highlights in this, and for this truth we have to go back to... uh, to chapter 4, the beginning of the chapter. And this truth is simply this. Not only is God always with us, but second, God is on the throne and in control even when evil seems to be winning. You ever look around you and think that somebody besides God seems to be on the throne? You ever look around you and wonder if somebody besides God is in charge of everything? You ever wonder about that? Well, these people were wondering. They were looking around at their fellow Christians being tortured, some of them being killed, families being separated, businesses being confiscated, houses being burned to the ground, people having to flee their homes, living out in caves. And they were asking the question, well, who's in charge here? It looks like the Roman Empire is in charge. It looks like the Emperor Domitian, who ruled at that time, is in charge. It looks like evil is winning. Well, look at uh, chapter 4. Beginning with verse 2. Now, verse 1 says, John's been invited up into heaven. He comes up there and verse 2 says this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, get this now. John has been carried up into heaven. And he sees, the first thing he sees, ladies and gentlemen, it's the first thing he sees, he sees a throne, and someone is sitting on the throne. Now that's verses 2 and 3, and he begins to describe the person who is sitting on that throne. He doesn't tell us who it is yet. He doesn't tell us this in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. He doesn't reveal the identity. It's almost like we're sitting on the edge of our seats, and John is making us wait to hear the identity of the person on the throne. Go ahead and tell us, John, who is it on the throne? Finally, in verse 8, he sees and he reveals that the person sitting on the throne is God himself. It's the Lord God Almighty. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? I told you, the people John was writing to, they were wondering who was on the throne. They were wondering, it didn't look like God was on the throne. It didn't look like God was doing anything about their situation. It didn't look like God cared anything about the torture that they were enduring. It looked like the Roman Empire was on the throne. There are people in this room right here 
who you'd have to stop and wonder. You may not say it out loud, but you have to stop and wonder. I wonder if cancer is on the throne. Some of you wonder if Alzheimer's is on the throne. Some of you are wondering if Wall Street's been on the throne. Some of you wonder if the government and Wall Street have been sitting jointly on the throne. You know who's on the throne? It's not Wall Street. It's not the White House. It's not the Congress. It's not cancer. It's not Alzheimer's. It's not the economy. It's not the city council. John says, the first thing I saw when I got up into heaven was there was a throne and someone was sitting on the throne and that person sitting on the throne was God. And John says, it doesn't matter about what you see around you. It doesn't matter about what you feel. It doesn't matter what your heart may be telling you. The fact of the matter is, God is on the throne. He's on the throne of your life, and He is totally in charge. He's never not been in charge. He's never not been on the throne. There's never been a time when he vacated the throne. There will never be a time when he will vacate the throne. He will always be on the throne. Now what that means is that nothing else is on the throne. And no one else. So this crisis you're going through has not removed him from the throne. So two things, two very important things God wants us to know in our crisis. Number one, he will never leave you. He's right there with you, sometimes carrying you. And number two, he is always on the throne and always in charge. Now, there is one other very important truth that God wants to show us about himself in these chapters. And, and it, it comes, all the way, comes all the way in verse, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Well, listen to what this says. Then I saw in the right, the right hand, what's it, the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who's sitting on the throne? Tell me. I saw in the right hand of him sitting on the throne a scroll. A scroll with writing on both sides of the page. That was unique. And sealed with seven seals. You know, at the time that John was writing, he had never seen one of these. I'm talking about a book. A book where you turn from page 539 to page 540 and 541 to 42. He had never seen one of these. They had never invented books yet. All they had were scrolls. That was their book. And a scroll was, was a, a long sheet of paper that had been rolled up. Sometimes it would be rolled up from both ends. And it would be this long sheet of paper that was very thick. And they would take wax called seals, and they would take the wax and seal the page like so. In this case, John said, I saw in the hand, the right hand of the person sitting on the throne a book or scroll, and it had seven seals. It was perfectly sealed. Now the question, I mean the $64 million question, is what was that book? What was the title of that book that was in the right hand 
of the person on the throne? Well, we won't know until chapter 6. But in chapter 6, each of those seven seals starts coming off and a different chapter in that book is unveiled. Now let me just tell you, I'm just going to go ahead and ruin it all right here. That book was their future. You want to know your future? I've written, a, I've written a book about it. It's called the future. Now you just have to take my word for it until you get to chapter 6. And from there to chapter about 14 or 15, you'll see that that book is their future. And it's your future, by the way. But it was their future. They were about to experience it. Somebody said, I thought that uh, chapter 6 and, and forward represent seven years of tribulation. You better go back and read the text. Go back and read the text. The book was their future. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. Knowing that that book was their future, where was it? Where was it? Did uh, some peon out in the city park on a bench, did he have it reading it? Tell me, yes or no. Did... Uh, uh, some uh, book reviewer, book critic from some newspaper, did he have it or she have it and they were reading it? Yes or no? Did an angel have it? Yes or no? Did one of the 24 elders have it? Yes or no? No. Who had it? God had it. And where did he have it? He had it in his right hand. You can search the Old Testament through and through. If you look up uh, uh, God's right hand, you will always see it connected with power, God's mighty right hand. In other words, this book, which was their future and your future, was where? It was in God's hand. Therefore, the third thing, that, that the third truth that John wants us to know about God is this. God holds your future in His hand. Now, Imagine you're going through a crisis. Some of you don't have to imagine it. All you have to do is just close your eyes and you're thinking about it all the time. Do these three, three truths comfort you at all? That the Lord has never left you. He's been with you all through the crisis and He's with you now and He will never leave you. That God, not your crisis, is on the throne and in control of your life. And that God holds your future in his hand. That doesn't mean the crisis goes away. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden it starts smelling like wonderful perfume and everything is rosy and nice and syrupy and No. It simply means that God loves you is with you, is in charge of what's happening with you, and he holds your future. And this God, our Lord, will never let you go. Lehman Strauss wrote a book entitled Learning Through Suffering. He wrote it in the aftermath of his wife having a stroke. She later died. But he wrote this book about their circumstances, what they learned through the suffering. 
And at one point as he was writing the words for the book, in his mind he went back to when he was a child. When he'd visit his grandmother and she'd make cakes from scratch. And she would let him go into the kitchen. She wouldn't let him touch anything now, at least not for a while. But she'd let him watch her as she would put all the different ingredients together. There was baking soda. There was flour. There were eggs, raw eggs. Sugar. And you ladies and some of us guys know all the ingredients that go into a cake. And he knew how wonderful his grandmother's cakes were. He couldn't get enough of them when they were done. Especially when they're right out of the oven and foot with, the, with the fresh icing on. But one day he thought, if this cake is so good when it's done, then, then I can't imagine how good each one of those individual ingredients must be. And so he asked his grandmother, will you let me taste, just get a little taste of each one of those ingredients as you pull them out? Well, sure. And he tasted the baking soda, and he thought, well, gosh, this is not as good as the cake is. He tasted the flour, and it had a whole lot of nothing in the taste. And then she dipped a spoon into a bowl of raw eggs, about a half a spoonful. And she stuck that spoonful of raw egg in his mouth, and he just about threw up. Had it not been that sugar followed the raw eggs, he'd have probably died right there. But what he found was this. Of all the ingredients that his grandmother put in that cake, most of them, set to themselves, didn't taste worth the flip. But when she had mixed them together with just the right amount of heat, he couldn't get enough of his grandma's cakes. God has baked life that way. Most of the ingredients that make up our lives by themselves are bitter. They're painful. They're sour. They don't taste good. Some of them make us throw up. Some of of them beat us down. And we don't like them. We'd prefer a life without them. But you can't have a made-from-scratch cake like this boy's grandma, like Lehman Strauss's grandma, without raw eggs and without the baking soda and without the right kind of flour. You can't have it. You can't have the life we have without the bad times that go along with the good. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes we stay on the field too long and we need to get in the hot air balloon and and get a perspective from above and when we do we'll see our crisis differently and we'll see God differently let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you that the view from heaven is different Lord help us to get that view in mind while we're going through a crisis because Lord down here sometimes a crisis just overwhelms us And it's all we see, it's all we can see. So lift us up to see things differently. Lift us up to see you differently, that you are always with us, even in the crisis. That you are always on the throne, even when evil seems to be winning. And that you hold our future in your hands, and nobody's going to take that future from your hands. 
Lord, help us to know that we can trust you. Lay our lives in your hands and know that we'll be okay. Lord, I pray for someone who's in this congregation who may not know you as their personal Savior. Lord, that they would need to, when we get up to sing, just to step out and come to this front and invite Christ into their lives. I pray for that person. I pray for that person who has been saved but needs to join the church, needs to be a part of this church family. I pray for people throughout this congregation who are in crisis. Lord, help us to make the decisions we need to make now to give us a better perspective later. In Jesus' name, amen.